Welcome to Connect Church. We're a new church in the East Windsor Heightstown area, and we're a church that is looking to connect to Jesus and community. We're so glad you've joined us. Hello everyone, my name is Dave and uh, I'm the Discipleship Pastor here at Connect Church and I just have the opportunity to share with you in this uh, Discipleship Pipeline video. Um, this is part of a larger series so feel free to go back through the playlist here and see the previous ones if you have not. Um, but we do put this pipeline into three components, uh, the heart, the hands, and the head. And so the heart is where we want to just immerse ourselves in Jesus, abide in Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Um, and so there's an in-person element to this video where we gather and we just spend time abiding in Jesus together. And our hope is that as we do that together, we could also learn to do that individually in our daily lives, as well as to, to the people that uh, the Lord puts in our path to disciple. And then there's the hands portion. This is kind of the practical things as we look at areas of our life um, where we could apply the gospel to it and then see how Jesus' death and resurrection affects those areas and what practical steps we could take uh, to live for Jesus through those challenges and struggles that we go to. And so those two elements are our uh, in-person once a month gatherings. If you're not uh, a part of that or haven't been a part of that in the past, we'd love to have you join us. And so there's a link in the description that you can fill out uh, to be with us in that. But then this is the head portion. That's what this video is about. Just kind of engaging our mind a little bit, growing in knowledge, uh, the theology of what we believe, why believe. And so we've been covering different topics Topics with this, and the one that we want to cover today is scripture engagement. And I just want you to know from the outset, it's going to be a little longer uh, than the previous videos have been. And so, if you have to break it up into multiple sections, that's fine. Or if you're riding in the car, whatever you need to do. But I appreciate you sticking with me on this. And as we think about scripture engagement, we probably think mainly of reading the Bible. And everybody has a different relationship with reading. Some people really like uh, to read. Uh, I'm always astonished at the end of the year that people read so many books. It's, it's really incredible they do it. Some people. People, they can't stand reading and they hate it and 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 they dread it. Um, others kind of kind of have a love hate relationship with reading. I'd say that's probably me. I, I enjoy it, uh, but sometimes I could become overwhelmed uh, by it as well. But one of my challenges is I try to do everything too fast. Some say I talk too fast. I definitely try to read too fast. And I've read things before where I read them incorrectly because I was reading too fast. One example is when I was in sixth grade, uh, I was in science class and uh, there was a picture on one of the pages that had a caption. And the picture was of a bird and a plant. And I read the caption as the plant eating the bird. And I was like, whoa, this is incredible. How can a plant eat a bird? Like, this is awesome. And so I raised my hand. To, it's so excited to share my newfound discovery with the entire class and, and hear how this could happen. And so as I raised my hand and I said those words to the teacher, how could a plant eat a bird? I, I realized at that moment, I read it wrong. Clearly, I mixed the words up in my head and I looked like a fool in front of everybody. In fact, high school years later, kids were still ripping on me uh, for that one. And, and I noticed I could do that with the Bible too sometimes. I'm reading quick and I'm just kind of going through it. And I'm like, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. And then I go back and actually, oh yeah, that's what this actually means. I was just kind of breezing uh, through it. And so as we talk about this today, scripture engagement, emphasis on the engagement. This is not just reading, uh, not just, just, just going through the motions. In fact, there's probably several motivations that people have to engage with the scriptures. We'll just kind of look at a few. The first might be checking a box. You know, this, this is like a lot of the habits in our life sometimes can become going to church, it checks a box, giving, serving, uh, you know, tithing, whatever the case, it checks a box. It's a sense of duty. Um, it's what we've been told uh, that we should do. And so, yeah, I should read my Bible, check. Even on you version, if you use that, you get a check mark if you complete that day. It feels good. 
Um, another motivation might be habit. Hey, this is what I've done. This is what I've always done. Um, this is maybe what's been passed on to me and my family. And that's a great thing. Uh, it's something I want to pass on to my children in the future and engaging in the habit of reading the scriptures. That's important. Um, but it kind of falls short because we know when things become habit only, they can become commonplace. They can become mundane. It could be something that we just kind of go through the motions with. And so you see those two motivations, like they're not bad, but they're not really helping us get where we want to go. Another motivation might be to grow in knowledge. And I encourage you that this also is a great motivation. As we engage with scripture, we want to learn more. But it's really not the end-all, be-all of what we're going. Knowledge alone is not going to solve uh, this for us or help us grow as disciples. You know, in Bible times, kids at the age of six uh, would begin to study the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it wasn't that they would just learn the content, which if you've ever read those books, there's a lot of content there. Uh, it was that they would memorize it. Uh, that, that's incredible. By 10, uh, they would, many of them would have the entire Torah memorized. That's no small feat. And so at that point, uh, at 10 years old, many would uh, then go into the family trade, but kind of the best of the best, they would keep doing this work and they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And so by 14 to 15 years old, they had the Old Testament memorized, at least a select group of, of, of young people. Now at 14, 15, I was not memorizing the Old Testament. I had my, many, uh, much other content about other things, but not that. Um, and then to take it a step further, some of those, the best of the best in that would then apply to uh, a rabbi uh, to train them and give them their interpretation uh, of, of the scriptures. All this to say they had it down. They had information. They could quote it to you. They could tell you the major themes and all that. And that's important. We're going to talk about some of that here. But I paint with a broad brush when I say this, that, yeah, maybe they had it down, but they missed the heart behind it. It was these people who had this kind of scripture engagement that turned to false idols and ended up in, in exile, as we read throughout the Old Testament. It was this group of people that had the scriptures that pointed to Jesus, but yet missed Jesus when he walked in front of them and they did the miracles and talked to him and all these things. And, and it could be easy to, to throw that at them, but we could be the same too, right? We, we know it. Uh, we, we, we've engaged it. We got the knowledge. Maybe you're still growing in that area. That's great. Um, but we can miss the heart behind it. And so the goal is not for us to attain information. We probably do need more scripture memory uh, in our, our, our uh, church culture. That might be something that we have perhaps lost, but the motivation cannot be knowledge alone. And so I would suggest to you that our motivation for engaging the scriptures has to be an encounter with the transforming God. And when I say that, you know, it might sound like uh, there's bright lights everywhere and there's angels ascending and descending every time we open the Bible. It's probably not going to look like that. It's probably going to look uh, much more subdued. But when we engage with the scripture, we say this is an opportunity for God to change me to be more like Christ. Look at, listen to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says this, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so as Paul writes to Timothy there, he's kind of saying, hey, we're transformed how? By being rebuked, by being corrected, by being trained, uh, and being all this leads to us being equipped, becoming more like Christ. This is what the scripture should do for us. And probably when the scripture rebukes and corrects us, we'll probably feel very different than when we're being trained uh, by it. But those are important contexts that we need. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. It says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him 
to whom we must give an account. The word of God should penetrate us. It should get to our heart. It, it, it should pierce us, so to speak, right? And so we need the seriousness that those that have gone before us that have had in studying the scriptures, but we also need the motivation. And this is to encounter and change my life. And so maybe we could frame it this way. As we do this, as we engage with scriptures, we should see it process our past, lead us in our present, and uh, prepare us for our future. Let me explain what I mean by those things. As we engage with the scripture, it helps us process our past. It helps us look and see situations that have already happened and say, oh, okay, this is the principles that were, were at work in those moments. Or maybe here's how I could have responded in a Christ-honoring way in those moments. It also points us to the grace of God. So much of the scriptures point us to God's grace uh, for our sin. And so as we look at our past and maybe we see some of those things, man, we can now process that through the grace of Jesus that saves us. But it also should lead us in our present. You know, as, as we get wisdom in the, as we read the scriptures, it should help us in the here and now for the trials and the situations that we face. It should help the Holy Spirit form character in us for what we're going through so that we could live for Jesus in this moment. We apply it right away. But then there's also an element of scripture engagement that prepares us for the future. Sometimes what we engage with the scripture for today might not be for today. It might be for three weeks from now or three years from now. But God is building in our life piece by piece something that's preparing us. I've heard this illustration before that scripture, scripture engagement is sometimes like eating food. Uh, you don't always know what you ate or when you ate, uh, you know, how it tasted in that moment. Uh, but you know that three weeks ago you had breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it nourished you, it fed and fueled your body. And many times that's what it is with scripture engagement. It might not always be earth shattering every single minute. Um, it might just be tucking away for the future, preparing us brick by brick. God is building us who he wants us to be. And so throughout the rest of this video today, we ultimately want to get to a point at the end where we talk about what methods and practices can we engage with um, to help us have better uh, scripture engagement to have this transforming work happen. Uh, but before that, I, I want to just take a, a quick aside here uh, to talk about how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? How do we know that what we're reading in the text is actually God's word to us? And this is a deep topic. We can only kind of hit some of the surface level on this. Um, in the description uh, to this video, there are uh, some links uh, to a course that we did uh, with our church a while back that kind of talked uh, on a lot of what we're talking about here on a much deeper level. And so it'll be more listening, but I would encourage you uh, if, if you're interested to go and check that out. But there's various views on the Bible. Some will say the Bible is just a bunch of good sayings. Others will say that men wrote it and it's been corrupted over time. Uh, some will say, hey, it's got good value, good teaching, but the supernatural elements ha have been added in or been, been made up. Um, one that I feel is a tension in our current modern day world is that uh, we, we tend to take the view that we'll just censor the parts of the Bible that we don't agree with. And often these are issues that are odds uh, with our current culture. And so we'll kind of say, hey, these parts are inspired, but these parts are just guys writing and it wasn't inspired. And if I can just comment here for a moment, that's not a faithful approach uh, to the study and interpretation of the scripture. Now, I've often found that the passages that we might want to throw out as not inspired or, or, or not God's word um, kind of fall into one of two categories. Um, the first is many times we didn't take the proper time to study them. This means going back and understanding the historical and cultural context in which they were written and making parallel applications to our world today. We'll talk about what that means a little later. But too often we neglect 
what it meant when it was written. And so therefore we cannot properly interpret it today. And, and, and so we want to maybe throw those passages out without actually understanding them. We may think we know, but we don't. Uh, another aspect, and, and I don't mean this to sound harsh, is that we want to be God. Uh, it, it's kind of our human nature that we want God to agree with what we agree with and say what we say and fit into the box that, that we've created. And so in many ways, we want to reverse places with God. We want him to be in our image and, and to back up what we uh, want. And, and, and so so I would encourage us that we need to take a different view of Scripture, um, Scripture as the authoritative Word of God, the inspired Word of God. And we'll define some of these terms as we go forward here today. Obviously, this is critical to us as disciples. There's actually verses within the Bible that tell us that if the resurrection uh, is not true, then our whole faith is a scam. And, and so we could apply that broadly. Like if we're following this and it's not really God's word, then what are we doing with our lives? So we're, we're wasting our time. We're wasting our time right now, even listening to this, if it's not true. So we got to know that we can trust us. Um, let's talk briefly of how we got the Bible. We often call the Bible the canon. It, it's what we refer to as these are the books that are divinely inspired by God. And so during the Old Testament times or the times of Moses, they recognized that this was God speaking and then eventually it was recorded uh, for us. But Moses spoke of a time where more prophets would come. So the people kind of had a framework for this. They expected that God would speak to them through this way, through teachings that would either immediately be writings or ultimately uh, become writings. And so by AD 2 the canon was pretty much uh, together for the Old Testament. The main challenge was what we call the Apocrypha. You may be familiar with that. These are some books that were written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason why we would not hold to those as canon is because they do contain uh, severe historical errors. Their doctrine doesn't line up with the, uh, the rest of the doctrine of Scripture. And there's no quotations in the New Testament by Jesus or by any of the New Testament uh, writers. If we look at the New Testament canon, uh, as they were writing, they recognized this was scripture. Peter actually says in one scripture verse that, hey, you know, Paul was writing the scriptures. He kind of puts them on the same level as that. And so the early church had to wrestle with when does this end? Like, when do we stop adding books to this? Like, there's some great books out there right now on spiritual growth and being a disciple of Jesus. I, I love engaging with them. Uh, why are we not just throwing them on at the end of Revelation and adding those into? Why are we not recognizing those as canon? And so the early church had wrestled with that, and they made a couple tests to kind of know. The first was they said, hey, this has to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. The idea behind that was, was this person with Jesus to make sure there was accuracy in teachings and, and, and that they had that relationship with the Lord? Um, the next question that they would ask is, is this being accepted by the body of Christ at large, recognized as divinely inspired? Um, is it consistent with what the rest of the scriptures teach? And does it have high spiritual and moral values that we would expect of the word of God? Now, we've been using a few words here that I wanted to find. We've used the word inspired, and I'm also going to throw the word inerrant in there. Um, inspired means that we believe that the, the, these books were divinely influenced uh, by God. In other words, God put the words exactly how he wanted them to be. It's as if saying that God wrote this himself. This is not saying man wrote about God and now we're talking about it. No, God wrote this. He did it through the vessel of mankind. Uh, the word inerrant, we would say, is that this, that this, if this is God's word, it should not contain any errors. And now it's here that some could say, well, we could throw the Bible out because there's been errors to be found there. I want you to keep in mind that as we say this, 
uh, as we talk about inspired and inerrant, we are referring to what we would call the original autographs. This would be the original pieces of papyrus that, that Moses and Luke and Matthew and, and, and whatever writer of the Bible actually wrote on. Uh, as you may know, we do not have the originals. We have copies. We'll talk in a minute how we can trust the copies that we have, but we do not have the originals because papyrus just simply did not last that long. It was necessary that it had to be copied. This is true for all ancient works, not, 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 just, not just the Bible. Another thing that we have to take into account uh, as we read and think about errors or contradictions in the Bible is that we tend to read in our own native tongue. For many of us watching this video, that's prob probably English. However, the Bible was not written in English. Uh, it was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. In fact, Koine Greek, which is really not even uh, spoken anymore at this point. For instance, in Koine Greek, there are several words that are used uh, for love and to describe different aspects or types of love. However, in English, there's just one word uh, for love. And so as we think about the translation of that, we know it's not always smooth. If you're watching with us today or listening to us today, maybe you are someone who is bilingual. I really wish I could be bilingual, but uh, when, I've, when I've been around places that needed translation, they, translators often tell me it's not easy to just say what you said in English into another language. It doesn't always translate smooth and nicely. And so that can contain some of the issues. We got to kind of keep that in mind. And so what evidence then do we have that we can trust this? We know how it was formed. We know inspired, inerrant, great. How do we know that we can trust this? Well, there's the internal evidence. The, there's the claim from the Bible that it's the word of God. And you might be saying, well, that's pretty weak. Anybody can claim anything. I could put a blog post up today and claim it's the word of God. Of course, right? It, it's a weak argument, uh, but we have to acknowledge it. Why? Because if the Bible did not make this claim, we can't even have this discussion, right? And so, so the Bible is telling us that it is the word of God. There's other scriptures that will say it too. So we at least have to be in the discussion. I also want us to note that it's not just one writer making this claim. Some other writings that claim to be scripture from God are one person that wrote making this claim. Uh, but with the Bible, we're actually talking about 66 different books from about 35 to 40 different authors. And so it's a lot of people making this claim. They wrote in three different languages. They sometimes wrote at the same time, although in different geographical locations. And you might say, what's the big deal of that? Well, they didn't have modern communication. And so they could not communicate with each other and say, hey, here's what I'm writing. What are you writing? Uh, you know, and, and but yet we have this unified message. I heard the antidote before of, of, of four students who were late to school one day to take a test. And uh, they told the teacher, hey, we were late because one of our tires blew out on the car that we were riding in. And so the teacher gave all four of them a piece of paper and said, okay, you can't talk to each other, but write down which tire it was. And as long as all four agree, I'll let you make up the test. And clearly they were lying. And so they weren't able to make up the test, right? And, and so if we think about the scriptures, how can we get a unified message across 1500 years, different geographical locations without modern communication Man, that, that's got to be the work of God in it. That, that's the internal evidence. Um, but what about the external evidence? We need that. And so let's, let's kind of walk through that. Well, it's reasonable for us to expect that God would want to communicate through writing. If God wants to uh, lay out a message for all mankind to hear, for, for, for all, all of, all of uh, this earthly eternity, so to speak, then it makes sense that God would want that written down. Well, if God would want that written down, there's some expectations we could have. And the Bible checks the box for all of these. The first expectation is that it'd be widely distributed so that mankind could attain it easily. We could probably run through various stats of how the Bible's been distributed and is continuing to be distributed. So the message is out there. It's accessible, right? Um, and so, so it checks that box. The second box, and this is one where we'll park for a few minutes, is that the Bible would be preserved throughout time without corruption. And, and, and this is all 
often where we kind of kind of face that challenge i shared with you before that we don't have the original autographs we have what we call manuscripts manuscripts are are the copies of it and, and if you've ever copied something before you could see where there is the possibility for error I sometimes, just like I read too fast, I copy too fast and I can write the wrong thing or misspell a word. Um, and if you think of ever playing a game of telephone where you maybe have 20 people in a circle and you tell one person a message and it goes all the way around, you say at the end, it kind of gets to a different message. Well, did that happen with the Bible? We could rest assured that did not, that did not happen. How do we know? Because of the vast amount of copies that we have. So let's just give an example. Let's say we have five copies of the book of Matthew. And in one of these verses in the copies, we see a different word or we see a sentence added. Well, we could look at the other four and say, well, that five was probably a copying error or a, a later scribal edition. Uh, it's probably the four that were the most accurate to the original. We have this evidence. But the thing is, it's not just five copies, right? We're talking that there are over 5,300 parts of manuscripts or manuscripts that we can analyze. If, if we look at the translations of the early translations of the New Testament, that number jumps up to 24,000. That's a lot of copies that we can look at. Uh, the second most prevalent one is the Iliad with 643. So again, this is true for all ancient works. We don't have the originals of any of this stuff, right? But we don't question these other ones, right? And, and, and so the Bible has a ton of copies for us to examine. That is really good. Uh, just to use the Iliad as a framework, it has 15,600 lines. And as scholars study the copies that they have of that, um, there's 400 lines that they find that are in doubt, that they're not sure have been changed or edited or whatever the case may be or having errors. The New Testament has 20,000 lines. With that, 40 lines are in doubt, none of which substantially change the message. Most of them are, are spellings or repeated words or things of that nature. In fact, there's been recent discoveries of more copies. Uh, there was not too long ago last year, there was a discovery of Zechariah and Nahum fragments from the first century. So more to examine to be able to see. So we can trust that this is reliable. Also, the, the gap in between copies is very important too. Again, using the Iliad as a reference, there's 500 years of from when we believe the original to the first manuscripts. When we look at the New Testament, we're talking about 35 years. And so it's far less likely that in 35 years, uh, things could be changed without people noticing, uh, without word, meanings of words changing and so forth. So we can trust that this has been passed down accurately. In fact, many Bibles will often footnote where the challenges are and they'll say, hey, some manuscripts read and then they'll give you uh, what that may be. And so if this is the word of God, we would trust that's been widely distributed, that's been passed down accurately. We would trust that it would be accurate historically. Uh, we see the Bible validated from outside sources like Josephus, a Jewish historian who is naturally opposed to Christianity, validates the history that happens uh, within the scriptures and the practices in the scriptures. Another example would be a guy named Sargon. He's mentioned in Isaiah and for centuries people could not find any evidence that he existed. Um, and then all of a sudden through archaeological digs, they found a libraries dedicated to him and all this evidence that existed. And so as time goes on, we continue to see the Bible validated. Um, moving forward, uh, if this is God's word, we should expect that it would have scientific truth or would not carry the false beliefs that people had at the time. If you read the Hindu scriptures, they'll say that the earth is on the back of four elephants who stand on gi giant sea turtles. Well, 
We've been to space. We know that that's, that's not the case. Uh, but yet Job says he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Isaiah says that God sits above the circle of the earth. In Genesis, when people are worshiping the sun as a god, uh, the scripture calls it a light in the expanse of the heavens. And so we see this being borne out. And then the last test that we could probably use is that if this is God's word, it should have a unified message, which we've already talked about, but also deal with the difficult questions of life. And we see that the scriptures do do that. And so the Bible is the only one that can meet all those tests. Are there challenging spots? Yes. Is it sometimes a catch-up game game like Sargon and some of those other things? Yes. Um, but we can trust that what we have is the Word of God. Okay, there's so much more I could say about that. But again, there's a link in the description that you can see, of course, if, if, if you kind of want to go down and learn a little bit more uh, about that. And so let's talk then about if we want to engage with this, we believe it's the Word of God. That's why we're really here today. Sorry, it took us so long to get to that point. But if that's what we want to do, then what practices can we employ? What methods can we employ to help us with that? Just some general guidelines, things you probably heard before. Um, first, have a set time, place, make it a priority. I know some people actually put it on their calendar. Um, that's probably not for everybody, but we know what life is. If we don't schedule something or prioritize it, it's not gonna happen. So I would encourage you, if this is God wanting to meet with me, if this is how God may speak to me, I need to set aside time for that. Obviously, we should eliminate distractions as much as possible. We know our, our phones and other devices can easily uh, distract us in a moment. That's why sometimes, even with you version, I'll read it in the physical Bible and then go back and hit the little, little check mark just because I know there's going to be a notification that's going to come or something that's going to easily distract me. Um, I would encourage you as you're reading the scriptures, have a good diet. We, we referenced 2 Timothy 3 before that all scripture is useful. And so if I just read the Gospels, but I don't read any, any of the law or the prophets or, 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 or Revelation, right? Like I need all of it. Right. And God can teach me through all of it. And so, so read through it. And then I'd also encourage you read through a whole book at a time. Don't just read uh, Colossians one today and Leviticus five tomorrow and Psalm seven the day after that. Read through the whole thing. If you're going to start the book of Colossians, read through the whole book of Colossians. Why? That's going to give you context. It's like when you're watching a TV show. If you just start on episode three, you have no clue who anybody is or how the plot is, is, is flowing together. That will help us with good interpretation. And then I would encourage you to get a good study Bible. These will help us kind of just put together some of the missing pieces sometimes that we lack in historical and cultural things. So that's general guidelines. Let's talk about how do you interpret the scripture? Because if we're going to engage with it, we have to make sure we're interpreting it properly. Again, links in the description if you want to hear more about this. Um, first, you have to start out with what did it mean to the original audience? Don't start with what does it mean to me? In fact, we're not trying to answer that question at all. It's not what does this mean to me? It's what does God intend to say? And then how does that apply to my life now? And so this is almost like you want to get a time machine and go back in their time and see how it all would play out. Here's an example. The book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel ministered to people who were in exile. Well, if I want to understand that, I got to learn why are they in exile? Where are they are in exile? How would people in exile understand his words? I'm not in exile, so I can't put my meaning on it. I got to understand how it meant then and then apply it to my life now. And so in order to go back in our time machine, you kind of got to look at three different contexts. The first is the literary context. Um, this would include things that you learned in English class, and I'll be honest with you, I was horrible in English class, but most people can grab these things as, 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 as you go, right? We know genres. Psalms are poems. 
And so when we read uh, God is a rock, we don't think that God is a literal rock somewhere. Uh, when we read narrative portions of scripture, we understand that we would read those a little differently than, than poetry. Um, think of it this way. Different sports have different rules. In soccer, I can't use my hands. In basketball, I need to use my hands, right? And so you kind of got to know what sport you're playing, what genre you're in when you're reading. And so take note of that. Um, literary context also focuses on other literary devices like active and passive verbs and repetitions and, and, and connecting words like therefore and things like that, that as you engage more and more, you'll begin to pick up on these things. So that's the literary context. We're trying to go back into their time. Then we want the historical context. What was going on in their world at the time? Where does this fit in the overall arc of scripture? We'll talk more about that in a minute. An example would be if, if Paul is writing this letter from jail, well, that's going to affect our interpretation. The book of Philippians, as he talks about having such great joy, the man is in prison as he's writing this, right? Well, that's going to affect the interpretation of how we, how we work through that. And then finally, to go back to their time, we want to understand the customs and cultural context. How did things operate in their day? Some of their customs that they had are not found in our day. And so if we don't take time to unearth those things and learn those things, an example uh, might be the women that wear head coverings in Corinthians. Well, why don't our women wear head coverings today? Well, we got to go back and understand the cultural context of that and then make proper application uh, today. If we talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, if we don't understand the cultural context that Jews and Samaritans hate each other, if we don't understand who a Levite is, we don't really have that in our culture today, we won't be able to properly interpret. And so we have to go back and, and, and do that. And so I encourage you, a good study Bible uh, will help you uh, with that one. Uh, the one I would recommend for that is the Cultural Background Study Bible will give you a lot of, of those things. So let me give you a quick overview uh, of the arc of the Bible. Uh, and, and I kind of want you to think about this. Maybe you've taken a trip before. We're here in New Jersey where we're recording this. And maybe you've gone from somewhere like New Jersey down to Florida to go to Disney or something of that nature. And I know everybody uses a phone for a GPS now, but imagine an old paper map, right? And, and we're putting a pin at where you are in the map. And so you're in Delaware and you know you got a long way to go. Oh, you just entered Florida. You still got a long way to go, but you feel a little better about it because you're actually in the right state. Uh, and, and so kind of knowing where you are in the journey, how much further there is to go kind of helps you. Same thing with scripture. I need to kind of know where I am in the overall arc. And so the Bible is divided into two main parts. We have the Old Testament, everything before Jesus. The New Testament is kind of Jesus uh, onward. Old Testament, 39 books, New Testament, 27 for a total of 66 books. And so we need to kind of understand the flow. And as you open your Bible, if you were to go to the ta table of contents, you're going to look at the scriptures and you might think that this is in chronological order, uh, but it's actually not in chronological order. It's actually grouped towards kind of the type of books that it is. Uh, so the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the books of the law. And as we hear that, we might think it's all thou shall not. It, it, it's not all that. That's certainly certainly part of it. But more importantly, it's establishing who God is, um, what his nature is, his love for us, his plan of redemption for us. In fact, in Genesis 3.18, we get the first uh, uh, idea of redemption coming. And so, so we see all that unfolding and being established in those books. Then we have the history books. And, and just to kind of go back for a moment, if you were to look at the table of contents, you'd find a book like Job somewhere in the middle uh, of the Old Testament. When really chronologically, it probably took place in the Genesis time period somewhere in there. And, and, and so again, it's important to know that as you're studying. Um, so we got the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then we have the history in the writing books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. This covers everything from the death of Moses all the way to 400 BC. And so again, you got to know where you're on the map. That's like a thousand years worth of time. A lot has happened. So if I start reading in Esther, I have to know kind of everything that happened before that, that led me to that point. If I'm reading in Joshua, I have to kind of know what led me to that point. 
following that, we would have what we would call the poetry and wisdom section, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. And then the last section would be the prophets. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah would be the major prophets. And then a whole bunch of guys that are minor prophets for sake of time. I won't list them off. But a lot of the prophets overlap with the history books. And so as we're reading some of Isaiah, you, you, you'll read similar things happening in Kings and in other places. And so again, it's important to know how those pieces fit together. Even some of the Psalms, they're attributed to David. And so they overlap with the life of David, which we read about in the, in the history portion of, of the scripture. So law, history, wisdom, prophets. Again, not in chronological order. order. But if we were to put them in chronological order, it would look something like uh, the chart that's on your screen right now. I love charts. I get a little geeky with this stuff. But if you want these, there'll be a link in the description. But here's what it would look like. And so it might be helpful when you're reading to maybe find uh, what book you're reading and kind of where you are in the narrative. Here's another chart that might be helpful for you. This chart kind of talks about the general flow of the Old Testament, kind of the order of events. So again, you're putting your pin on the map and saying, oh, here's where I am. Here's what happened. Here's where I am in the redemptive story. So that's the Old Testament. Then we have a 400-year gap. Uh, we call it the intertestamental period. And then we have the New Testament. The New Testament is also not organized in chronological order, at least in terms of when it was written. Uh, but if we were to look at the groupings, we'd have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's kind of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, however, they were not written first. Matthew was probably one of the early ones, but the rest were probably written a little later. Then we have, after the Gospels, the book of Acts, which covers the first 30 years of history of the church. And then after that, we have a bunch of letters. Uh, many of them overlap with Acts. Some of them uh, don't. And so again, here's a little chart for you uh, that will give you the flow of the New Testament. So you kind of have an idea where the books fit in and what's happening. And then uh, another chart for you here, the chronological order of when they were written. So Matthew, James, and Galatians were probably written first. The books that John wrote were probably written last. And then you see there in between. Again, all this is a link in the description if you want to kind of jump into it a little deeper. All right. So all that to say, we got to go back in time. We want to engage with this. We got to go back in time and and, and, and understand it better. Um, but then the next step that we want to do is we want to look for the timeless principle. What is this text teaching for all time, regardless of whether I lived in Bible times or in, in current day? Here's an example. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about how the religious leaders would stand on the street corners and they would pray to get attention and they would look ragged when they fasted to get attention. And we could study that in their time period and see the practices and the culture and historical context of all that. But the timeless principle then uh, would not be that they stood on the corner. The timeless principle would be that, hey, they were doing things, uh, spiritual habits for the attention or the praise of others so that people would look to them. That's kind of where they got their righteousness. And, uh, and, and so, so we need to understand what's that timeless principle. So here we're looking for something, whether it's true 30 AD or 3000 AD. This is an important step. The next step after that, so let's recap. We're going back to their time, understanding it, how it would be understood then. We're in the time machine. Then we're trying to find the timeless principle. What is this teaching for all time? And then we're looking at how does this passage point me to Jesus? How does it point me to how Jesus fulfills this passage? How is this passage impacted by Jesus' death and resurrection? And this is a challenging one. Uh, for this step, I would actually recommend there's a Bible that I just started recently called the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. And I found it to be very useful with helping in making this part of, of the connection with the study notes that it has. And, and so uh, we want to be people that point everything through Jesus. If not, we're just becoming moral. If we just get all these moral teachings, like we've made morality our God, right? We want to be fulfilled through Christ. And so as we think about Matthew chapter 6, we can say, how does that point to Jesus? Well, we had some people that were trying to declare their righteousness by standing on street corners and doing spiritual things. 
uh, when in reality it points to Jesus by Jesus is our true righteousness. What he did, his death and resurrection, it makes me righteous. And so as I engage with these spiritual practices, it's to honor Jesus, not to get righteousness. That kind of helps us get the right motivation. So we go back to their time. We find the timeless principle. We point it through Jesus. And then the last step is to make a parallel application to our world. You know, in geometry class, you probably learned about parallel lines and how they should never intersect. Well, we want the same thing with our applications. We don't want slightly parallel uh, that will eventually intersect. We want uh, uh, truly parallel lines. So again, Matthew 6, if we were to say, well, the application of that passage is that we should never pray out loud today, or we should never have corporate prayer, or we should never have corporate fasting. No, that's not what that passage is going at. As we look at the timeless principle of, hey, this is not doing spiritual habits for attention, here are some applications that we can maybe find for our world today. When I'm praying with others, do I make it really long so that people think I'm more spiritual? Do I throw good words in? Do I change the tone and tenor of my voice so that people will think that I'm conjuring something? You know, like that would be an application of today. When I'm fasting, do I make a big uh, public acknowledgement of it so people will look at, at what I'm doing? That would be the application parallel. And so I would encourage you, as you're studying scripture, incorporate these four elements as you're engaging with it. What did it mean in their day? What's the timeless principle? How does it point to Jesus? And then how do I parallel apply it to my life today? There's other methods. There's soap. There's you version. There's devotionals, our daily bread. Like all these things are out there. They're great. Use them as appropriate. But if we don't learn to study this for ourselves and do this for ourselves, then we're missing out on an opportunity to engage with God. And remember, our purpose here is so that he will transform us. And it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to read the Bible one day and, and all of a sudden we're completely changed. But as we continue to store that word in us, God will use that to change us. And so it's not just doing a practice, but it's meeting with the living God. Take it a step further. We've talked primarily about reading and interpreting the scripture today. And I think that was important. So that's why we did that. But I want to encourage you to invest in scripture engagement beyond a set time, beyond what you set for, for your practices um, and, and here's a few ways you could do that. One might be to meditate uh, on a scripture. You know, take time to just maybe just dwell on it throughout the day to come back to it. Um, one of the ways that I like to do this, and it's going to sound a little funny, uh, but I like to read the scripture over and over again while emphasizing uh, a different word. So example, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my. And, and I'm doing that rather fast here, but if I was doing it in practice, I, I would do it slower and spend time processing each of those words, meditating on it. What does it mean? Allowing God to speak to me and speak his truth in my life and to transform me. So I would encourage you to meditate on scripture uh, that, that goes beyond the set time that we schedule somewhere in, in our day. Um, I would also encourage us, we want to engage scripture more, maybe memorize scripture you know, we see Jesus, uh, when he responds to temptation, he draws on scripture that he had memorized. Um, we need that. We, the, the word says that we need to hide God's word in our heart, not in our head, in our heart, so that we might not sin against him. And so we're not doing this for a check mark or to say, oh, I memorized so many verses. That's great. Um, but we're doing this to say, hey, I need this. This is ammunition for me when I'm in battle. Again, it's tucking away food for the future, however you want to look at it. We probably need to grow in scripture memorization. That's a form of engagement. Um, I would encourage you to write out scripture and journal on it. Um, maybe it's just as you're reading. Right now, I'm reading through the book of Isaiah, and there's some things in there that, man, the Lord, the Lord is rebuking me and correcting me. And so I just write it. I'm writing it in a journal, and I'm just writing about it. And okay, Lord, here's what I hear you speaking about this. That that gives time for us to hear God's voice. We're engaging with it, not just reading with it. And then I encourage you to pray the scriptures. Take time. Say, Lord, here's what your word says. 
as I'm, as I'm reading about the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, I'm praying that the Spirit would manifest that in my life. And so I encourage you in that. I want to thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to be with us. I know, again, this was lengthy, so thank you for sticking through with it. In the, the description, you're going to find a bunch of links for resources even beyond what's been here. Um, our word of the month is Marshall, uh, and I will uh, pray us out today. Jesus, we just thank you for this time together. Um, Lord, we pray that we'd be people that not just go through the motions or check a box, but Lord, that you would transform us. Father, I just ask that as we read, Lord, even in the times where it may seem dull or mundane and we need to shake it up or whatever the case may be, Lord, you would just speak to us. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would use your word to transform us, to make us more like you, Lord. Say your name would be honored and your kingdom would go forth. Lord, I pray again that for the people that are part of this discipleship pipeline, that you would put disciples around us that we can disciple, people that want to know you. Lord, use us. We commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this encourages you to take your next steps in your faith journey with God. You can check us out more on connectchurchnj.com. Have a great day.